So I get a text this morning, uh, and I'm going to be honest. I mean, everyone knows that we've been doing upward basketball, and I usually get here around 7 o'clock uh, on Saturday mornings, and I don't usually get home till around 5 or 5.30. Um, it's kind of generally a good day. So I spend a good chunk of my day up here, and I'm not just sitting around doing nothing like uh, apparently I do on my days in the office, but uh, I am walking around, refereeing games, coaching games, making sure everyone everything's flowing well and everything, and, and uh, I was super tired last night. You can ask my wife. She, she got home. Uh, she had gone over to Maggie's house to help get some stuff ready for today, and she came home and we were trying to watch something on the couch and we were watching something and there was a funny joke in it and she woke me up three times to hear the joke and I rewound it back and I would fall asleep before the punchline every time. And so this morning I was like, our kids are in Tulsa and I was like, you know, I'm going to take this morning to sleep as long as I can and get a little bit of rest before, you know, I have to go to church and everything and we have Valentine's Super Bowl and everything. And so I just kept hitting snooze, kept hitting snooze, kept hitting snooze, and finally I'm like, okay, I think it's time to get up, and I roll over, and on my morning got started quick, fast, and in a hurry when I see a text from Monica going, do you need anything? Is everything okay? And I was like, what is happening? And then I see the text from Aaron asking me if I'd preach, and so I started immediately laying there thinking about what I could, what I could share with you this morning, what would be something that would be uh, worthwhile for, for you guys, and uh, quite frankly, that I already had prepared that would be easy for me and not stress me out too much about what I'm going to do. And so I, uh, I wanted to share with you guys actually what we're talking about in um, the youth ministry right now. And so I'm going to give you kind of a little bit. We, we, heard, uh, we heard the State of the Union address earlier this week, so I'm going to give you the State of the Youth address this morning. But um, so on Wednesday nights, we have uh, 25 or so kids, maybe, maybe on good nights up near 30. And a lot of these kids um, come in um, on, uh, Ashley Sokolovsky drives a van and picks up a bunch of, of them and they come in together and it's really cool to get to see all these, this friend group and everything come in and a lot of them are, are very, very much learning a lot about the Bible and a lot about God for the first time and it's really it's really neat to see and to witness, and I very quickly learned as I was trying to talk about certain things that, you know, I needed to go back and kind of start with some basic foundational building blocks, and I think that these are things that are good for all of us to go back and kind of look at from time to time, and, and as I've been doing this, I've been finding really cool and interesting things that have, that have helped me to better understand what I believe and why we say the things that we say and why we do the things that we do. And so uh, right now we're, we're looking at the idea of who Jesus is. And I want to ask you guys to do something for me real quick before we really jump into this. But I want everyone in here, and no cheating, because I will see you. I want everyone to close your eyes just for a second. I'm not going to, the youth always think I'm going to like scream at them while their eyes are closed or something. I promise I'm not going to do that this morning. But I want everyone to close your eyes. And I want you to picture in your mind, Jesus. Like what, I guess in your mind, what you think Jesus looks like, who Jesus is. And I want you to really have this, this good, vivid picture in your, in your head about what, what you think you look like 
And um, I, want, I want it to be there. I, and I want you to keep it there as we go throughout, uh, throughout today. But now what I want you to do is I want you to open your eyes and take a look at the screen. Okay? If you have studied a lot of anthropology and um, different things, which, believe it or not, I don't actually know why I did this. I almost got a minor in anthropology whenever I was in college just because the classes interested me and I took them and almost took enough to get a minor in it. But this image on the screen, or half of an image on the screen, is a representation of what historians believe Jesus might have looked like from anthropological records and skulls and different things that they've studied and put together that is an image of what they believe someone who was living in Nazareth at the time of Jesus kind of just an average would have looked like okay and I think what's interesting is I don't know about you and I don't know about the image of Jesus that you had in your mind when you closed your eyes but I think for a lot of us it's very different from the image that we have on the screen and I think that this is very telling about kind of the way that we view Jesus in our own lives. Not just in a physical sense, but I think a lot of times we allow the world to define who Jesus is to us. Or we allow the world's image of Jesus or idea of Jesus or thoughts about who Jesus is to maybe not change the way we view Jesus, but at least affect it in a way. And so what we've been looking at over the last few weeks in Wednesday Night Youth is we've been looking at how the four Gospels, if you didn't know this, I'm going to share a little bit with you. I'm sure most of you probably know this. But each of the four Gospels creates a different picture, a different angle of looking at who Jesus is. And so what we've looked at so far is the book of Luke. We know Luke was a physician, and Luke was very aware of a, you know, I, I guess as a physician, you're very aware of what makes someone human. Um, and so the book of Luke does a great job of illustrating Jesus as a human or Jesus as a man. And then the week after that, we looked at uh, Mark, and the book of Mark paints Jesus as a servant. And then uh, what we're going to look at next week is John and it paints the picture of Jesus as God. We know John, John 1, the word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It, the whole book of John points to Jesus as God. But what we looked at this last Wednesday night, and what we're going to really examine this morning, is the book of Matthew. And the book of Matthew paints the picture of Jesus as a king. And I think if, any, if I ask any of you in here, is Jesus a king? You would probably say, well, yes, Jesus is the king of kings. And I really started thinking, as I was diving into this, is we talk very often about Jesus being a king, and I never really hear anyone explain why Jesus is a king. Like, being a king is a very specific thing. King's not just, you know, an arbitrary title we give someone. A king meant something especially when the authors were writing this. So what is it about Jesus that makes him a king? And so before we really dive into 
Jesus as king, or before we even leave this place and claim that Jesus is a king, I think we need to look at what is a king? What makes someone a king? And now again, I'm not going to make you close your eyes again, but I think we could all picture what we imagine a king looks like. For me, it's generally a bigger guy sitting in a big giant chair, a throne, with a big golden crown, and I don't know why, but he's eating a turkey leg, okay? That's what I picture. I'm sure we all have an image of what a king is, like what we think makes a king. But if you look at the dictionary, and I did, I looked at actually four different dictionaries, um, four different definitions of what a king is, and I kind of pushed the four, I pushed the four um, definitions together, and I came up with this kind of cumulative definition. It says, a king, a ruler of a land or territory, typically established by birth, one to whom everyone is subject, and one whom sub, who subjects himself to no other. And if I look at this definition, and again, this is, I mean, those words, I, I can't write that good, okay? If you don't, if you know me, I think I was supposed to say write that well, wasn't I? Okay, so that should tell you a little bit about where I'm at in my understanding of the English language. But I can't write that good. And those definitions are verbatim from the dictionary. They're pieced together, but they are words of another. Those are not my words. If we look at that, we very plainly see three criteria of what it takes to be a king. We see that they must be a ruler of some land or territory or people. We see that they must have some royal bloodline or in some scenarios, marry into a royal bloodline, but typically a king comes from a royal bloodline. It says that in the definition. And then finally, the last thing we see is this idea of sub everyone subjects themselves to them and they subject themselves to no one. And so we look at the idea of total and complete authority over others. So ruler, bloodline, and authority are the three things that we need to check off to show that Jesus is truly the king that we claim that he is. So, as we've been walking through this on Wednesday nights, the thing I keep having to tell the youth is, if we're going to sit here and we're going to be at church and we're going to look at these claims of Jesus, and if we're going to say, I want my picture, my image of Jesus to be different than the world's image of Jesus, I can't use the world's definition or the world's information to prove my point. And so every proof that I have done on Wednesday night for them has come strictly from God's word, from scripture, fully and completely. So we're going to do the same thing this morning. We are going to use scripture today to try to find proof that Jesus fits these three criteria for a king. So let's look at the book of Matthew. We already said that the book of Matthew was written with the intention of proving that Jesus is a king. And if we start with the book of Matthew, I'm going to give you guys, you know, 
I think, I, I, and, I'm, and I'll be honest, I knock this sometimes. I give people a hard time for like making kids do Bible drills because I talk about how I'd rather, I'd rather kids know good theology than know where the book of Malachi is. But I'm going to give your Bible drill skills a test this morning because we're going to be jumping all over the Bible. I don't know if you can see from out there, but I've got a bunch of little blue post-it notes right here that I'm going to be jumping all over the place. So bear with me. I didn't have time to get anything on the screen, but we're going to start in Matthew 1. The very beginning of the book of Matthew, and if you know anything about the book of Matthew, it starts in chapter 1 with a genealogy of Jesus. Literally, generation after generation after, quite frankly, boring generation of Jesus' family tree. But as we start to look through this family tree, I want to look at, I want to point out something very interesting and important to you. And before we do, I want to, I want to just make sure we're on the same page about a couple things. One, the number seven is very important in the Bible, okay? If, if you didn't know that, welcome to the party. The, book, the number seven is very important in the Bible. The numbers in general are very important in the Bible. And if you look at the number seven, it is the number of perfection, the number of completion. You look at the, the, that God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh and everything was complete. That was the completion. I think most people, even non-Christians, know that the claimed number of the Antichrist in Revelation is 666. That gets thrown around a lot for reasons I don't understand. But we know that the number six is viewed as the number, the number of humanity and incomplete, you know, not perfect. And that's why the Antichrist is 666. But we also know that the number of God is 777, meaning perfect and complete and whole. And so as we look at this, I want you to keep in your mind the number seven because it's, it's important as we look through here. Another thing we need to understand is who Abraham is. Abraham is viewed as the father of God's people, okay? We're not going to go into a lot of Genesis history, but just understand Abraham's important, okay? Second, David, same David of David and Goliath, viewed as the great king of Israel, and who in 2 Samuel 7, which is the first place I will turn to test your Bible knowledge, in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13, he is told, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. And then in verse 16, it says, Your house and kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So David is not only a great king, but he is also told that his kingdom will reign forever. So a big deal. And then there's a very important part of Old Testament history that's the, exi the exile of God's people from the promised land into Babylon. And so we're going to look at these four things in this genealogy and try to maybe understand why this genealogy is planted at the beginning of the book of Matthew. And so if we start to look at that genealogy, we notice one thing. And this makes sense because he's listed as the father of God's people that the first name in this family tree is Abraham. Okay, that's the starting point for this genealogy, which again makes sense if you look at Old Testament history. And if we count through, and you may just trust me, you may not want to count them, but if you look through two cycles of seven, so 14 generations, you end up at David. Okay? You, 
can say that's coincidence if you want. I don't think there are such things as coincidences. But you end up with two cycles of seven generations, and you end with King David, the great king whose throne will be established forever. You go through two more cycles of seven, and you come to the exile of God's people from Babylon. Again, maybe a coincidence, but I don't believe in coincidences. And then you go through two more cycles of seven, 14 more generations, and you come to Jesus. And again, I don't believe in coincidences. So I think even if, even if we knew nothing about who Jesus was, if we just looked at that from a generational perspective, I think we would all say that 14 generations from the exile, you would be expecting something. That pattern has been laid out before us, that 14 generations equals something. So we see Matthew at the very beginning, before even saying a word, just laying out facts of who Jesus is from his family history, we see Matthew pulling out big punches in his claims of who Jesus is. That Jesus is a generational marker for a messianic event. And that Jesus is not just falls in this weird coincidental, not a coincidence by the way, 14 generations from the exile that he falls there, but also he's proving that Jesus is of the bloodline of not just any king, not just a king. Jesus doesn't just have royal blood. He comes from the great king, David, who was promised that his throne would be established by one of his own blood forever. Now, we could get into what all that means, but uh, I only have so long up here this morning, and so I'm going to try to cover that in just a second and be brief. But for now, we have proved our first criteria that Jesus, excuse me, that Jesus is of a royal bloodline. So we can check that off the list. Now let's look at a ruler. Now again, a ruler has to have some sort of land, some sort of territory, some sort of people that he rules over. And based on what we just read and understand, the people or land that Jesus would inherently from his bloodline have to rule over would be the people of Israel, the Israelites, who are dubbed God's people, because that is the kingdom that his heir, King David, ruled over. And so let's look at what the Bible says about Jesus as a ruler over Israel and the Israelites. And for this, we'll go to Luke 1. We'll go to the Christmas story. And we see the messenger angel Gabriel coming to Mary to let her know that she is going to have God's son. And so we'll read uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 30 and 30 through 33. And it says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will never end. So we look at this, and we say... 
Well, that kind of matches up with what we just looked at about how the, king, the kingdom of David will be given to one of, his, one of his blood that will carry it on from there forever and ever, and that matches up with what we say. But then it also says he will rule over the house of Jacob, and I'm going to very quickly touch on this because, again, I hope that many of us in here understand this. But if you look at Genesis 32, and we know that Jacob was the one who had 12 sons that were the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, if you study Old Testament history. And we look at Genesis 32, verse 28, and this is when Jacob is wrestling with, it just says a man, and I, I think this could be an angel, this could be uh, a, a type of God himself, but we see Jacob wrestling with a man, and after a long time, Jacob is demanding that this, man he's wrestling with, bless him. And then the man says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. And so we see Jacob renamed to Israel. And so again, when we look at, we look at Gabriel telling Mary that her son will rule over the house of Jacob, he is saying that he will rule over Israel and so, we have to understand that Jesus had a kingdom to rule over. That it was the kingdom of Israel. And, that, and if you don't, you know, and, and we could, we're going to get into this in a second, but if you want to say, well, he didn't rule over Israel when he was on earth, then I would question to you why the soldiers that crucified him felt that they needed to mock him by putting a sign over him that referred to him as a king of the Jews. People understood who Jesus was claiming to be and who people thought Jesus was. They knew. And we look at the, the life that he led. You look at the, the middle section from the genealogy of Jesus to the end of Matthew. We see his physical rule now it's not a typical rule like we see where they're sitting in a palace and passing decrees and governances and things but Jesus rule was he was a king of the people the whole book of Matthew is his ministry where he went around preaching and teaching and healing and being with the people and the book of Matthew shows this it illustrates the rule of Jesus over the Israelites So it's very clear that Jesus has the bloodline and it's very clear that Jesus has the people or the territory to rule and so finally we have to come with what I think is the hardest thing to prove from to someone who doesn't believe this up front and it's Jesus's authority and so again we're gonna be looking at this from a biblical proof a biblical perspective so we have to understand first and foremost that God has the ultimate authority. And again, if, you, if you're tracking where we're at in this series, we haven't yet proved that Jesus is God, so we're going to hold off on the fact that Jesus has ultimate authority because he is God. So, so just bear with me for a second. But we understand authority in our everyday lives, right? If, if you're a kid and you go to school, you understand that your teachers have authority, or at least you should. And I'm sure, Michelle Wright, all the kids understand the principal has authority, right? 
They all, they all treat you with the authority that you deserve. Okay, just making sure. We understand that our parents have authority over us. Now, kids, you can just da-da-da-da. We understand our parents have authority over us as kids. And, and everyone else, you may want to go da-da-da-da, but we understand that our lawmakers have authority over our country. We understand the concept of authority. This isn't some groundbreaking information that we're being shared this morning. But we have to understand that true and all-powerful authority comes from God and God alone. Subject himself, subject himself to another. The definition of a king is one who subjects himself to no other. So that doesn't, that doesn't match up. But I want to look at a critical moment in John 18 where Jesus is on trial. He's being questioned by Pilate. And Jesus responds to something Pilate asks him with this phrase, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. And Pilate turns around to him and says, Are you even a king then? And Jesus answers, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. This is an interesting thing to say. I, I, I just want everyone to be with me here. I think this is an interesting thing for Jesus to say, especially someone who's, who's supposed to be an authority in this moment. Why does Jesus say this? Sure, we see that Jesus has territory. We, we, we see him claim that he has territory that he rules that's not something physical and of this world that we can understand. We see that. Like, maybe some people look at it and go, well, that's why Jesus said it. He's trying to illustrate that even though I don't look like I have authority, I really do have authority somewhere else that you don't know about. I don't think that's really what he's fully getting at here, though. I think there's something deeper we must understand. And so if you look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, we see the Bible talk about, we see Paul reference the God of this age. Some of your translations may say the God of this world. And I think many people may read this and understanding the authority that God does have, just write this off as, well, God is the God of this world. But if you look a little bit deeper, and this is, this is that next level reading of the Bible, you see that the God, in this, the God of this age, the God of this world in this passage, has a lowercase g at the beginning of it. Meaning it's not re referencing the one true Yahweh, big G God that we refer to as God. It's talking about someone else. And it's actually referring to the enemy of God as the God of this world. And we know this because as humans, and we're not going to get into a huge, deep theological conversation, but we've filled this world with sin. We have. If you watched the Grammys the other day, we filled the world with sin. Okay? 
We have filled this world with sin. God can't be a part of that. We know that. We know that about who God is. So the God of this world is not the one true God. The God of this world is the enemy of God, and that's who it's referring to here. So we look back at Jesus' words to Pilate here, and it kind of takes on a whole new meaning when we think about the enemy as the God of this world. We don't just see Jesus personally claiming to be a king, which is nice for the proof that Jesus is a king, that Jesus himself says he's a king. But realistically, we see Jesus calling his shot on how he is going to obtain his authority. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. I want to be clear here that this cause that he came into the world for is, is not specifically to die for our sins. Yes, that is a byproduct of, of what he did, but that was not the specific thing he's referring to here. But understanding that Jesus came into this sinful world to die a sinless death so that he could overcome sin, death, hell, and the grave and reclaim his authority over this world. See, when, when Jesus tells his disciple in John 16 to have peace because in this world, these are Jesus' direct words, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's not just talking about having authority over our rulers, over our president. over He's talking about having authority over Satan himself. Jesus has the ultimate authority of God. And this is where it all ties together, and I don't want you to miss this. So stick with me for just one more minute because I want to point out one more thing to you. Because we get to the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20, 18 through 20. And Jesus is resurrected. He's talking to his disciples. And he gives them what we know as the Great Commission. But I want to look at something interesting that Jesus says here. So Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, he says, Then Jesus came to them and said, what? All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that concludes the book of Matthew. And I want to look at one thing here. The book of Matthew, a book that was designed to paint the picture of Jesus as a king takes the three criteria that modern day dictionaries which quite frankly were probably written by people who don't particularly want to prove that Jesus is a king just being honest 2,000 years ago words were written that 2,000 years later 
take the criteria of the definition of a king and the book of Matthew starts off before anything else proving Jesus' royal bloodline and then spends 27 chapters showing Jesus' rule over the nation of Israel and then concludes in the 28th chapter, the last verses of the book of Matthew, with a claim and a proof of Jesus' authority. The book of Matthew literally lays down and matches up with a perfect definition of who a king is. And again, I don't believe in coincidences. Guys, I can't make this stuff up. I literally pulled these definitions from dictionaries. I didn't, I didn't just make them up to fit my narrative or to fit what I wanted to say or what I wanted to teach. I had no idea it was going to even happen that way. Everything shows that Jesus was everything he was, everything that he is, and everything that he did can undeniably prove him as a king. And so I ask you this morning, are you allowing him to be king? Are you allowing him to be king? Because let me tell you right now, if you haven't noticed, our world is very, very torn, very, very broken, and quite frankly, very, very far from God. And we're reaching a point where if you're not for God, you're against God. There's no gray area. Revelation 3 says if you're lukewarm, you will be spit out of his mouth. You're either for God or you're against God. And let me tell you something right now. When Jesus returns, he's not going to return as this picture of a, a... questionable authoritative God that gets crucified he's going to come back with his full authority in hand and if you're not with him I don't want to be on the side of that so I ask you this morning is Jesus the king of your life and if he's not or if maybe you feel like you're you're not subject to the rule in this area or something. Man, you need to get that right with Jesus today. Because he does have that authority. And one of these days, he's going to show it. Let's pray, and then we'll have a time of invitation. And I, I would challenge you to use that to make whatever you have wrong with God, that any area where you're not fully allowing him to be king that you would make that right today God I thank you so much for the opportunity the pleasure to get up and to share your words God these are not my words these are your words straight from scripture shared to these people and I pray that you would help them to understand to to see that you are king and that they would put you in that rightful spot in their own lives, and that they would be able to see you and treat you as the king that you are. God, I pray that if there's any area in my life where I have not put you as authority, where I have not put you as king, that you would break it, and you would allow it to be torn down, 
that it could be repaired by you and you alone. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you as king, has never acknowledged you as king, has never confessed with their mouth that you are Lord and king, that they would do that today for the first time, that they would step into eternity with you, God, knowing that your kingship will reign forever. God, I pray that you would just work on the hearts of those who need to be mended, work on the hearts of those that need to be softened. God, work on the hearts of those who are lost and need you. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and all that he did for us, that he overcame this world, that he died a death to regain the authority of this world. I pray that you would just help us to honor his sacrifice with our lives. And we pray all this in his precious name, Jesus. Amen.